Hi, and welcome to All This and the Oscars 2, AwardsDaily.com's podcast on the Oscars. I would say weekly, but it's not necessarily weekly, but we do try to make it weekly. Um, I am here with editors Ryan Adams and Clarence Boy. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey there. It was almost weekly. We just missed one week last week. <laughs> it's like you know, <laughs> one, one out of three weeks we missed. Yeah, but it's like missing your period, you know. Maybe you're pregnant, maybe you're not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Sorry. Please, no. <laughs> I, mean, we, I mean, considering that we Please went no. months without doing a podcast, you know, it's, it's really good that we have done two in the same month, I think. I do, oh. too. God, let's pat yeah. ourselves on the back. It's not like when any of us has any free time, we're busy all the time. <laughs> but um, uh, so we're going to start with um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because it's sort of back. I, I got to see it last night at a second screening, and I just was I was so blown away by the movie the second time through. I was blown away the first time, but the second time was even better. And um, and Clarence, you, you interviewed the sound people, right? Yes, the sound designer, um, Wiley Statement. Who Sound had people. worked for <laughs> all? He'd done. He'd done all of Oliver Stone's films and mm-hmm. um, uh, Peterson, um, Wolfgang uh, Peterson. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, and now Tarantino. All of uh, seven of Tarantino's last films. So oh, it was wow. a fantastic conversation. I can't wait to talk about it. Well, let's hear it. I, I'm I'm excited. We can start with that. We also want to talk about the Spirit Awards, which dropped today, which I thought were very interesting um, in terms of being really very much uh, resisting sort of the Oscar narrative, which is great, I think, because I really do think that that's better if the Spirit Awards are the Spirit Awards and the Oscars are the Oscars, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. So the only movie that did really well there was Uncut Gems that has uh, picture, director, and screenplay. Um, but they really did try to push, I thought, women directors through because they have two films directed by women in picture and two directors nominated who are women. But none of them, none of those four had both picture and director, which is a really great way to build consensus, you know, heading into a race like ours. But for the Spirit Awards, it's great because they can all show up and they can all get Mm -hmm. publicity. And it's, I I felt to be a very inclusive kind of um, nominations list. You know what, uh, uh, on that subject about the because don't the spirit awards uh they have sort of they've they choose their nominees by committee right and i think don't, so doesn't, doesn't yeah. each category have its own committee and yeah. then they're different people and so that might help explain why the two different committees would choose two different groups of women directors yeah they, sure, they do that yeah. at the oscars yeah. too right because mm-hmm. they have the director's branch and the acting um or di- oh, the directors uh-huh. and the yeah. writers and whatever it is they're different although directors do choose picture too Everybody chooses picture, but um, yes, that's right. But what it tells me is that it's like last year, it's kind of too all over the place for any one woman to crack the five um, Mm. at the Oscars. But I don't think the people at the Spirit Awards care. And I think that the nominations show that. And so that's good. You know, we don't have to talk about how they relate to the Oscars. We can talk about, um, you know, how they they stand on their, their own. Like, I think they give a really big boost to Honey Boy the Shia LaBeouf movie um, Uh that got a lot of nominations there. Uh, And Marriage Story, I thought, disappointed a little bit because I thought that at least um, Noah Baumbach would show up as director, which, you know, he's kind of an indie darling and and he didn't really show up there. And that was, I thought, interesting. Um, But it did get the Robert Altman Award for Ensemble. 
But the problem is, is that people have Adam Driver winning Best Actor, and they have Laura Dern winning Best Supporting, a lot of the pundits, and they don't have, because you're once you win the Robert Altman, you're not going to be in any of the um, acting categories. I'm not sure exactly how the rules work, but that's what people tell me. I don't know about ineligible, like I don't know how that works. Did they send out to voters and say, we're giving Marriage Story the Robert Altman Award, so don't vote for any of these actors? Like, I don't know if that's how it worked or... Mm-hmm. If they I do think it, it must, because fact. like I said, they wouldn't even have to notify very many people if, if, if the nominations are done by in-house committee. Because I think, see, the thing with, with the Spirit Awards, anybody can vote if you, like, you sign up to join and pay $100 or something, right? And anyone with $100 can vote for the final winners of the Spirit Awards. So they want to more carefully, carefully curate the nominees so that... No matter who among the nominees wins, they know it's going to be somebody good, I think, right? That's what I'm trying to say. And uh-huh. so, but um, I forget what made me say that. I, it, it linked back to something else we were talking about, but I forgot already. We were talking about uh, Marriage Story getting um, the Robert oh, right. Altman Award. And, and they must, I don't know if they just pull the nominees out of the final tally and then it's the sixth nominee for, you know, if there mm-hmm. were, if Scarlett Johansson or Adam Driver had popped up in there, they just took them out and then... Hmm elevated the sixth person or, or, or they just block them from the ballot. I don't know. It's really weird. And I don't understand why they would deem to do that. Like why, why can't you honor a cast and individual performances? It, it's uh-huh. I don't understand it either, but I, I know that from a buzz perspective, it's harder to build the buzz. If you don't have those spots, like I was thinking about Laura Dern, I was thinking it would be really good for her. Just, just her, you know, take out the other right. two. And it would be good for her to at least place there. And they're not even there to compete at all with anyone, which is really strange, I think, especially since it's a Best Picture nominee. Um, on the other hand, it also would be weird for them if they had Marriage Story in so many categories. And then they, may, they might feel like, well, it's taking up so many categories and we're not able to let all these other people in. But their actress um, lineup seemed really, I thought, thin. It's thin this year anyway, but like Scarlett Johansson easily could have been in that list. So I don't know what that means. I don't know why they went that route. And I don't know um, what that means in terms of the movies, how it'll do with the SAG uh, nominations. I, I suspect it's still going to land all those nominations that it that it wants, you know, like. And so, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to make sure before I said this, because, but I was pretty sure it was true. It goes to not only the cast and the director, but it goes to the casting director, too. So it mm-hmm. really is, and it really does pay tribute to Altman, who did such a good job with his ensemble cast, putting his, them, putting his cast together. And that's part of what a casting director does, too. So it's a good way to recognize a casting director who otherwise doesn't get any major awards all year long right sure but and so and so but but it is bad like you said for the individuals who you would think would appreciate well, sure because the, the singled out yeah if you look at the Robert Altman award and you look at the history of it it really like moonlight and spotlight it's really given to movies that don't really have any lead performances it's it's more ensemble work um but marriage story is very much as you can see by the advertising materials and the way they're selling it is very much on these two performances. It's yes, it's an ensemble, but it's really supposed to be about the two of them, you know? So mm-hmm. it is a little bit odd that they would give, I think that award to those two, I mean, the award to the entire cast is sort of like obliterates the fact that it even has these two leads, you know? 
Um, right. But it does, and it's it's unusual, put it that way. For um, It's unusual for it to have turned in to be the Robert Altman, I think. Did um, Marriage Story get a screenplay nomination yes. at the Spirits? Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah okay, good. All right, yeah. But just not well, a director. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And and that can be explained by the fact that they wanted to push females. You know, I don't know who those judges are. There's only like five of them, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, I think. I really do think the committees for each category are pretty small. There's not a whole lot of people, and then they change from year to year, too. And so I was hoping when I looked it up just now that I could find out how they determined the winners of the Altman Award to see if it was a, if our hunch was correct, that it may just be because across the board sort of appreciation from other categories, but they don't they don't clue you in about how they, they make that decision. And it could, as far as, uh, as uh, the, the fact that they feature more women directors and writers, it could just be because women have, are more likely to be given independent films than they are big studio films. Yeah, that's I mean, yeah, but I'm, I'm just trying. But you're right. They do ob- obviously have that on their mind when they're do- when they're making their nomination. I think because, so. Uh, yeah. Nobody, sure. nobody yeah. wants to get called yeah. out on Twitter. You know what I mean? Like nobody wants mm-hmm. to be because that's exactly what they're trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially when you have so many good opportunities among independent films, among so many good choices yeah. to choose right. from that, that are not just um, steamrollered by the big boys. Yes, at the Oscars. exactly. Yeah. The, the, the thought would be. Marriage Story is a bigger film for Noah Baumbach, and he's used to doing these smaller indie black and white movies. And mm-hmm. so the argument would be that Marriage Story is going to do just fine in the awards race. Let's boost some other movies that aren't going to, like you say, like aren't going to get attention. Let's try to, like they did last yeah. year with Chloe Zhao and the writer. Uh-huh. They really made an effort to bring female directors up and filmmakers up. That, and, and you know what? That is the independent spirit. What Noah Baumbach's yeah. doing with Marriage Story isn't really the independent spirit. It's much more of a mainstream Hollywood movie. That's how they're selling it anyway, you know? Mm-hmm. So I could see why they might... It might not have anything to do with the movie at all. It might just be that they don't want it to be like it was when Silver Linings Playbook won, <laughs> you know? Silver Linings Playbook beat, like, Beasts of No Nation. It's like, well, which one's the independent spirit? Well... That's obvious, mm. you know. Silver Linings was a studio movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's the one with Jennifer Jennifer Lawrence shaking her ass in the camera's face. So <laughs> that's, <right. laughs> that's the one that you go with, clearly. Best actress, ka-ching. <laughs> well, you well, win. That, to be fair to Jennifer Lawrence, it's actually she just happens to be shaking her ass and it's it's the director who put the camera right down there in her butt crack. <laughs> and and she's a she's a she's a very good actress. She is. Yeah, and I mean, she's I'm, yes. Yeah. I'm she not is. saying she's a whore, but you know, no, I, 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 I know. I know. I'm not accusing you of that. And I, I can't even believe that I'm defending that anything about the movie, but I do blame the uh, uh, David O. Russell more than I blame her for, for, for yeah. the camera placement. Yeah, and I sure. feel like that was a real low point for the Spirit Awards. To me, that year mm-hmm. was really disappointing. And so I give them all the praise in the world for this direction of moving into the actual independent spirit. You know, I think that's great. Yeah. That's where they will, that's where they're valuable. They're not valuable if they're just a mirror for the Oscars, you know? Mm-hmm. The Oscars right. are the Oscars, but. And that's why it was so weird that Honey Boy didn't make it into the the best feature category because it's the kind of movie you would think that they would elevate. Yeah, absolutely. And if it had, that would be real shock and awe for that movie. The fact that it didn't, and that's the problem with women is that I remember last year it was really frustrating because Marielle Heller had um, Can You Ever Forgive Me coming out of Telluride, and that was the one that had the best shot. But 
the critics just said, no, we don't want to support that. We like, you know, this other movie by this other film director. And, and so there were like all of these different narratives of the kind of woman that they wanted to back. And so obviously none of them would get in if that was the case, you know? Mm-hmm. The only other thing I will say about the Independent Spirit Awards is I would like you guys to think back two weeks ago when we were doing our preview podcast about what would be nominated. Mm -hmm. And I want you to remember, when I said The Lighthouse, I want you to remember you guys laughed. It was laughed me, me. especially. I know. I thought you actually. I thought you were joking. I thought you were joking. That's why I laughed. And so, but yeah, you were doing right. Yeah, Yeah, I I gotta say your predictions I think were kind of spot on. The yeah. preview post that you did. I think you just sort of nailed it. I mean, yes, there were a few obscure, I think, yeah. obscure titles that showed up that I don't think anybody predicted. Like, who's, who were the judges? I tried to find out who they were, you know. Like, I'd love to know who the people were picking some of these these things. But um. the, the Lighthouse actually got, looks like to me, uh, just glancing down the list here, they got more nominations than any other film, didn't it? Did it, it top with, them? It tied with Uncut Gems. They both had Oh. Um, I got. I think I got a link for the lighthouse, so I'll try to send that to you, Ryan. Um, okay. If, yeah, if, I might have got a link. I get. I. I, I need to sort my email. You're like. Better. You're. You know, like you're. You're like uh, uh, the big man on campus right now because I every single day I get some other Ryan Adams <laughs> package. <laughs> it's like a whole bunch of screeners in there. I for mean, the listeners, I have a huge I, bag I, I, I full of them. I moved to a new apartment. I moved to a new apartment uh, two two months ago, and it the day that that they had it was the deadline for me to turn in my new address for the roster for the screeners list that I get put on. Was I hadn't heard back from whether I was going to be accepted by the landlord or not, whether I was going to get the apartment that I wanted or not. So I didn't know what address, what new address to give. So I just I made it look like that Sasha and I are living together. Which, <laughs> and so, so all my mail gets going to Sasha. So yeah. much <laughs> <laughs> living together. <laughs> no, but it's pretty neat. Like never in my life have I gotten this many screeners. Like you're just getting so many of them. I have a huge bag. I mean, it's like a suitcase full. It's like, you know, the Pulp Fiction suitcase. <laughs> Full it glows. <laughs> You're going to get a huge bunch of these things, man. Great. I'm looking but, forward to it. I mean, yeah. I know what it's like too. It's just like uh, every and and it's amazing that that they would just. I mean, I, every day every day I would open the door and they'd be at the doorstep, right? They don't. Mm-hmm. Some of them don't even go to the mailbox because they're by courier, Most and the courier them, yeah. just comes by and leaves them by the door. Is that what it's like at your apartment too? Um, well, the the Warner Brothers one had to be signed. Like I had to sign oh, that okay. one, so I was like, wow, that's that's really big. And and of course, because it's Joker. Um, uh right, yeah. Uh-huh. They're trying to be really careful about that one because it's probably already out there on eBay, (laughs) you know, but, um, the little indie ones, I don't think they care as much and they just put them on the debt on the doorstep. But yeah, none of them, well, a few of them have arrived in the actual mailbox if the envelope's small enough, but Mm -hmm. yeah. Right, I got some of those too. But and it's one I of those did, things, I like in those. Jazz, Jazz uh, tweeted out yesterday that they left Marriage Story apparently at her doorstep, and one of her neighbors absconded with it. Yeah. So she's yeah. So that's awful. It is. I heard an NPR story that that millions of people have their mail stolen off their front step every year. Uh, right. Uh, it happens to me, but it's never happened with a screener before. But yeah, it's heartbreaking. It's bad. Yeah. It's just like. And it's, I mean, you know, what an ugly thing to think that your neighbors would do that to you. Well, just anybody. But like, why just wouldn't anybody, they? Like, right. There's oh, a yeah, box. It could be anybody driving you know? by. Sure. Yeah, take the box. Who knows what's in it? Like, they'll put anything in there that's valuable, you know, so you can just sell that. Easy right. way to steal things, right? Mm-hmm. 
wasn't didn't somebody post a photograph of a of a screener that's on eBay? And it was yeah. selling for like seven hundred dollars or something. It was what Jojo was Rabbit. Oh, yeah, Jojo Rabbit. Why would you spend that much money? I think the last I time know. he posted it was like a thousand dollars. Why would you spend that much money on a movie? You know, I can't That's understand it. Nuts. And you're gonna get. I mean, first of all, you're the the seller's gonna get caught, and the buyer's gonna get caught too, right? Because yeah, the seller can get prosecuted. Yeah. yeah. You know? I don't understand it. But yeah, I've, I'm, I was just really wrong about the lighthouse. I I have to not. I mean, we all do, do it, but I mean, I'm really bad about it. If I if I don't am not taken by a movie, I can't really understand how anybody anyone else could be. But obviously, a lot of people do have a lot of respect for the lighthouse. Well, <laughs> well you, you I, saw it I already, Ryan. It because I'm so often wrong, so <laughs> I just wanted it. To... Well, it I makes me want to give it another chance. It. it makes me want to give the movie another chance, and so I will. Wait, I, you saw uh, it already, you guys, both of you? He, gets, he passes out <laughs> naked on a rock and, or something, and he gets pegged. It, it kind of doesn't make any sense. It's really well made. I just the story is just not there. Like, and if you're, <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's really hard to talk to um, Willem Dafoe about it because. <laughs> Like there's a scene where he has to deliver this mouthful of dialogue, this oh. like this um, soliloquy almost. And Robert Pattinson is shoveling dirt on him to bury him alive. <laughs> the dialogue with wild dirt flying in his mouth and he's just <laughs> spitting it out and then trying to talk. And then another <laughs> shovelful falls on his face. So it's <laughs> and it, what's funny is that in the um, in one of the comments and, and uh, you, you know, feel free to cut this out. In one of the comments on our 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 post of the Indie Spirit Awards, someone wrote, well, you know, uh, Willem Dafoe got nominated, so this is his first step to Oscar. And I'm like, there's no fucking way he's going <laughs> to Exactly. I mean, I love the guy, but he's not going to win an Oscar for a movie where they're, he's trying to recite dialogue where they're throwing dirt on his face. <laughs> the, the seagulls that represent dead sailors. and It's, it's crazy, but, you, you know, it's, it's never boring, I don't think. Did you think it was boring, right? It's not boring at all, but I mean, this, this is fun. I mean, I use I expect more from masturbation than I got from that movie. I mean, that's not the kind of masturbation I like to watch on film. I will say that the actors were very committed. <laughs> so they both masturbate like separately, or well, Willem Dafoe is naked in it. Um, Full frontal? But, uh, no, from the side. And he's just masturbating. <laughs> Uh, I think he, he, Willem Dafoe wasn't masturbating. I don't. Uh, uh, oh, it was God. Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson was masturbating. So the idea is these two guys are stuck in this lighthouse, right? That's the it's, plot. It's, yeah, yeah. And they're and, desperate for sex, and I mean, I didn't hate it, but it, it's not. I, it was nowhere near as good as The Witch. The Witch was, I think, pretty amazing. I love The Witch, but uh, this is not. No. The cinematography is really special. I mean, I do. I mean, I'm not, I'm, you know, I can't, I'm trying to think of something good to say, but I really do sincerely think that the cinematography was fantastic. It's so textural. You can just, you can just, you can feel how every, the textures of everything. Well, that's like, good black and white cinematography. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah. But the, and the production design was interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> People always Don't say, say that. The cinematography is good. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. But, you know, Academy members, they don't have patience for that sort of thing. So There's no way in yeah. hell you can touch this movie with a 10-foot pole. I'm sorry. I don't even think Willem Dafoe is going to get nominated, honestly. Yeah. But um, film Twitter certainly seems to, so I don't just, I don't speak. <laughs> so why did the, um, why did the indie spirits co almost completely ignore Waves? I don't know. It's a good question. No idea. 
Because I mean, other than it's just it's directed by a white guy, but um, that's it. You know, maybe I, maybe that's all it takes. I don't know, but maybe they didn't like it because it was buzzed by bloggers. Maybe they just don't like it. I don't know. Like I can't, uh, I can't understand it until I look at the judges and who they are. Like I looked at the Gotham judges, I know who they are, and so I understand their choices. But I don't know who the the people they picked for the for the um, indie spirits are. But what I do know is that it sort of takes Oscar out of the equation, so it's not an awards show that I'll, I'll need to be paying much attention to, except for as its own thing, you know? Right. But it's not necessarily going to influence the Oscar race. It's not going to push... I mean, honestly, maybe Shia LaBeouf gets in for supporting. Maybe that happens, you know? But I don't think it impacts any movie one way or the other, not even Marriage Story, you know? Which I expected to do better there, but I don't think it... it hurts it or helps it you know what i mean it's not it's just not that kind of of situation at the spirits where they're going to influence they're not even a publicity event because by the time they have their awards the oscar ballots are long since been cast Mm. so they can't even really build unlike the golden globes which will have its awards show before oscar ballots the only one so it really is a big publicity event the golden globes so that's going to matter a lot more in terms of this year's very bizarre condensed season. Like right now, SAG voters are voting. The nominating committee right now is voting. And that's shocking. Like it's still November. <laughs> oh, no. Wow. I just can't even wrap my head around that. No, me I, either. Gosh. Hmm. Which means cats and getting in for SAG, and I'm just so depressed because of that. <laughs> cats is going to have a hard time even getting in for Globes. You know what I mean? So it's I don't even know. I if don't it's, know. It has a screen for anybody. You know, it hasn't. So. No, it's it's supposed to screen, and I I, I just I joke. Um, you know, I'm not being serious about that, but it's it's supposed to screen for Globes, um, like three days before. It goes uh, before their nominations. I think like they nominate on the ninth, and they're seeing it on the seventh or sixth. Oh wow! So it's a really weird. Be, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. It'll be fresh on their. Sorry, it'll be fresh on their minds, or it'll go nowhere. <laughs> that's just basically it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's a it's a this is an unprecedented year in the Oscar race. So we don't. None of us really knows how it's going to go, and anybody who pretends that they know, they don't know because they're only using intel from the previous years, but. This year, as we talked about last time, the Producers Guild and Directors Guild and Oscar Ballot deadline is all on the same day. So that's why publicists are being so aggressive. And that's why there's so many crazy things happening. So many, you know, so many swag things being sent out. So many screeners, so many screenings, you know. It's highly competitive. Everybody wants those SAG nominations and they want the Producers Guild and Directors Guild. Nobody knows how any of it's going to land or if any of it matches up, like... It's the strangest year. It's like a total crapshoot. Anyway, so we're talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so we can talk about the cool interview you had with the sound designers. Yes, that was, um, it was unexpected. So I, I will say that um, <laughs> sometimes when you do an interview, you have this connection, this rapport with somebody, and you and you can imagine yourself just kind of sitting down at a dinner table drinking wine with them. And um, I had two interviews that way today. One of them was Wiley Stateman, the uh, the sound editor for um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Halfway through the interview, though, I, I kind of pulled myself out of the interview and realized you are way too dumb to be having this conversation with this guy. <laughs> he was uh-huh. 
brilliant. Like he he just he not only knew sound, he knew film. Like yeah. he knows he just he told me so many things about that movie that I I didn't even realize. Like it hadn't even I've only seen it once. So I need, I need to see it again. And I, I intended to see it again before this interview and I just didn't get around to it. But um, when I see it again, I'm definitely going to be watching for these things. He's telling me things like, you know, yes, you can look at the last scene of the film, the, the Manson attack or Tarantino's version of the Manson family night um, and think that that is threatening and intense. But then he thinks the most intense scene of the film is the spawn ranch scene. Mm, mm. I, did, I did too, really. I, I think I said that. Um, I mean, I don't know if I tweeted about it, but I did say it to somebody. But I mean, I swear I did. It really, that that scared the shit out of me. That's wow. Because yeah. at that point, I still didn't, nobody, I mean, I didn't know what was, what was going to happen to anyone because it, it was all, it didn't have to adhere to history, right? And so anything could be happening. And it was, I, I felt the, I felt the, you felt the threat. You really felt the threat. You really felt um, frightened for, for uh, Brad Pitt's character, right? For sure. And one of the most interesting things he says, and I, and I actually made him repeat it because I wanted to write it down to make sure that I, whatever this interview ends up being, I wanted to make sure it was a part of it. They only made 15 minutes of orchestral music for the whole movie. That scene is done, the mood is set by the sound. The, the intensity is set by the sound. And he, this sound designer, Wiley, he thinks that that is the future of the way emotion is carried through the film. It is not necessarily through the music that since the traditional cues, it should be the sound, the rustling, the, you know, the, the, the different ways that they have to drive emotion through sound, not necessarily through musical cues. And mm. I just, I was, I was, I just like melted at that point. It was just, you know, this is, it was just so fascinating. Mm. So I, uh, I had a really great time talking to him. It was a <laughs> interviews for those, for those listeners, interviews are traditionally 15 to 20 minutes before a publicist pops on and says, I'm sorry, we have to hang yeah. up now. Mm -hmm. uh, last question. This guy talked for 50 minutes. Wow. Wow. Yeah. He's perfect match for Tarantino. Oh Yeah. You know, he um, he seems to he, get people who works with work with him that really like to you know are very passionate about what they do. Well, you, and you know what, Clarence, that means that he was enjoying talking to you too. He could have had he could have cut it short. He could have signaled the publicist, "Get me out of here" if he'd wanted to. But absolutely. he was enjoying the conversation. And so, what you said about you are not smart enough to talk to him. He obviously didn't <laughs> feel the same way. Definitely, he was not. he was he was feeling like he was getting good feedback, and he was. Um, it was a good back and forth or he wouldn't have kept talking to you, I think. So that's a, a compliment to you, I think. Well, he wanted me to come over to his uh, house so he could show me some things in his um, Atmos Dolby studio oh system my or that he set up. And I was oh, like, wow. why do I not live in Los Angeles? Oh, wow. <laughs> How cool would that be? I know. I mean, he, I'm looking at his resume and he's done like Nixon and JFK and a, you know, a bunch of John Hughes movies and Tarantino and he did Almost Famous, which I had to stop and talk to him about that as well, because that's one of my favorite movies. Mm -hmm. um, just a just such a it's such a rare treat to talk to somebody who 
loves the craft. I mean, I talk to a lot of people who love the films that they work on, but so rare do you talk to somebody who just has such intense passion for the craft. And you're right, Sasha, it is a complete perfect match for Quentin Tarantino who loves film. I mean, you can tell it in every single scene that he films. He, he has a, a complete adoration for the craft of filmmaking. Wow. So, so when we think about sound, when we think about the sound category for the Oscars and people predict it, they always think like most loud, right? They think like, yeah. well, okay, so 1917 seems like a no brainer for sound. And then they go like our two rules are most loud and musical. So rocket man is probably going to be something that sound mixing will probably get nominated for. Um, that's usually how they go. So that's two right off the top. It's 1917. And that's, and then I think Ford v. Ferrari is going to have a pretty good shot at a sound nomination mm -hmm. um, with all the cars and stuff. I, It's just sort of an instinct I have that it'll, it'll get in for sound and for editing both. Um, and and then there's two more. And then I think, uh, what do you guys think? Like, what would be the... Do you think that Once Upon a Time in Hollywood can get in for sound? And if you do, what are the scenes that you can think of? I can think of sound editing for that. Like the scene... The Brad Pitt scene at the end, for sure, with the dog and the killings and all that. Like, that's a sound editing thing. And the sound on the movies within a movie, I think, is really mm -hmm. good. And, uh, yes, once upon we, time. We, talk, we talked about that, too, about how it's not the sounds of a traditional set. It's more the sounds of what you're hearing as you're watching the film. I mean, if you were watching the film within the film, that's the way that they've made that scene. It's not necessarily banging of hammers, which is what you would hear when, um, you know, you would traditionally film a television show in that era. Right. Um, so, and, the, and I'm talking, go ahead. I was Sorry. just going to say, and since, since he's doing Westerns in these movies, um, the, the sound with that is very much, you know, the kind of movie that would get a sound nomination, you know, a lot of gunfire and, horses running and you know that there's a lot of of noise so uh so i i guess i won't be surprised considering who he is and his legacy mm -hmm. that he I, i would i would think that that after talking to you and after talking about you know you telling me what we know about him i think i would i would feel confident going ahead and predicting that for a sound nomination when you mentioned the era before a minute ago, what made me think that one of the things that struck me about the sound for Once Upon a Time in America is it, I mean, in Hollywood, that it really, it recreated the sounds of L.A. in 1969. It didn't sound like somebody went out with a microphone and, re and recorded ambient sounds in L.A. today. It sounded mm -hmm. like, for instance, I think from the very beginning, I think one of the first things, um, of, uh, one of the first scenes, you hear, you hear so many birds. And, I, and, and and up in the hills. And I don't yeah. know uh, that you would really hear that so much anymore. It, it just sounded like it, you just really, it, it placed you in a time frame. Yeah. The sounds did that, that it made you, made you think that this is the way 1969 sounded. The cars, the, 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 cars, the airplanes, yeah. the everything, the, I mean, uh, kitchen utensils, uh, can openers, mm -hmm. everything <laughs> had a, had a, had a, had a vintage sound to it that sounded like I really put a lot of thought into it. One and of the things that he really talked about was the usage of songs and the radio, like K, I don't remember Sasha. It's KHJ. Yeah. That's our yeah. LA station. When we were kids. Yeah. Yeah. He talked about that. And, and, and that's how like that stuff's written in the script. Um, oh yeah. Oh, Tarantino I know. felt so strongly about the usage of those songs and the radio voices and all of that. That's written into the script. But you know, just I'll add this in just in terms of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, one of the things, I don't know if this is a, this must be a sound designer thing, 
But one of the really beautiful things about the sound in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that I noticed on the second viewing was was the was the moments of silence, like when mm-hmm. Brad Pitt's on the roof, for instance, and just mm-hmm. before she puts the record player on and the music comes back on. Because there's music throughout the silent scenes, like at Spawn Ranch, they really mm-hmm. do stand out. And you're just sitting there at, at in this like Chatsworth weird ranch and these creepy girls running around and it's a dead silent. You know, like that, I think in a movie that's full of music, uh, those scenes really do stand out. And how you use silence, I think it is, shows that you're a master, you know, whether it's the sound designer or the director that does it. Uh, back to the radio station, KHJ, you say it was? Yeah. I like the way that, that it, since there are so many parallel storylines going on about people who's, who haven't yet interacted, I like the way, that, like for instance, um, Sharon Tate would be listening to KJ mm-hmm. at the house, and then they would cut to someone listening, someone in a car, but they'd be listening to the same radio station. And of course, it would have the the acoustic differences between the way it would sound in the house and the way it would sound on a car radio. But it was the same song, so the so the music for uh, and the radios stitched the scenes together. It, it helped lace oh, everything together yeah. in a way that helped you remember realize that it was all happening simultaneously. Yeah, that's you know? fascinating. Yeah. One of the, one of the yeah. fun things I've gotten to do in this, uh, one of the great things about running this site is sometimes you get invited to some really cool things. And one of the cool things I got invited to was um, <clears throat> Tarantino at the Grammy Museum. And he was with mm. Paul Revere and the Raiders, and they sang there. The lead singer of Paul Revere and the Raiders literally showed up. <laughs> like, but oh, wow. um, but he uh-huh. talked to this guy named Dave Wild, who actually I followed on Twitter, and then he followed me back. He's probably unfollowed me by now because I'm so obnoxious on Twitter. <laughs> I hope he hasn't, but mm-hmm. he's pretty neat. He's he's known Tarantino for their like almost their entire lives, and they're really good friends. And so he hosted him, and, and he talked. Tarantino talked a lot about the soundtrack and the movies, and he'd actually. Because, you know, we all of us who grew up in L.A., we, we know KHJ. That was the our radio station we all listened to. Um, Tarantino and I are, are basically the same age, and we grew up in basically the same area. So a lot of our experience, we even both worked in video stores. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of our experiences were kind of similar. And so that's one of the reasons why I love the movie so much is because it really does feel so nostalgic to me um, having grown up here. But that spe- the specificity to detail um, from Tarantino, from the uh, the music that he picked for the songs um, that he told he said to the audience at that Grammy thing that he he picked up actual tapes of KHJ, and so mm. he was able to find them like somewhere on eBay or something where he was able to to pick them up and and find out exactly what songs they were playing on any given day. That's the kind of specificity this movie has. Like you you sent me that thing Ryan about the um, production design. I think it's Bob mm. Richardson who does that. Right. And and the stuff in that in the um, the house, the Manson house where they were murdered, the posters on the wall and the furniture and everything in there is like a museum, you know, like he, well, yeah, his right. Attention to detail I mean, is insane. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Yeah. And it, and and it's not as if anyone would really be aware of that unless they have studied the actual crime scene and know what the house was like. But it but it's a it's a layer of authenticity that. 
must have, I mean, I'm sure it tickled Tarantino to be able to do that. And it also puts the actor in a setting that just must be transformative. It's like, it's like a time travel thing to be put placed back in, in a set that is like a exact, mm. exact duplicate that replicates the setting so precisely. And, and, it's, and again, with a radio station, not just the songs that were chosen, but the DJs sound so authentic. Yeah. And so I didn't, I wondered how they did that, but it's because he has recordings. And so he knew what they the chatter that they would be doing, the type yeah. of stuff that they would say, and the the, TV, the commercials, too, exactly. the radio commercials. That's what's I one of the funniest so things about yeah. the movie is how he puts in the commercials, even on the TV shows mm. and stuff like that. Like yeah, right? his, his attention to detail on this, uh, you know, from top to bottom is so impressive for a film director mm. to get that deep into it. You know, this is a guy who really created with very loving detail these things he carries around with him in his life, and he knows so well. That's what I loved. I, I, I actually, the second time I watched it, I'd like it brought tears to my eyes to watch the scene where right before they go to El Coyote restaurant, he lights up the neon lights mm-hmm. in the town. Mm-hmm. Like just that shot oh, of no, those right? shots. I yeah. never noticed that the first time through, and then I see it goes, you know, lights them up. I was just like, wow, that's so beautiful. You know, just to do that and to show, and he creates both at Spawn Ranch and that on that day of the murders, such an incredible time and place, you know, and he just, he places you right there. Um, and, and at the same time, because he's so gifted at what he does, you're never bored, never, you know, like even though he doesn't fill it with, I was watching Kill Bill earlier today, and that movie is just filled with things to keep you distracted and entertained. But with uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he slows it down a little bit, but it's still not boring. Like this, Nothing in the Spawn Ranch scene is boring, even though a lot of it is without dialogue and without music, you know? I just remember about that, the Spawn Ranch scene. I, it's like I didn't breathe. I mean, it's, I, uh, especially at the very beginning. Well, at different points all the way through. It's a long, it's a long sequence, obviously. So mm-hmm. I, I obviously did breathe, but it made for long stretches of time. It's like I was holding my breath because it was just the the threat, the uh, ominous sense that anything could happen and anything could go wrong, and it almost did. It almost did go wrong if he hadn't driven off when he did. But yeah, I just love the attention. I think Sasha, one of the very first things you wrote about uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on the site, you said it was like a culmination of Tarantino's career and his life, and that's so true. It just you just felt like everything that he has thought about and learned about what he wanted to put in a movie and about how to make movies, he included in this movie. It's like everything all came together just perfectly, and it's just culmination is just such the right word for that. Uh, he has such a, his career. Yeah, no, thank you. But in and both of the characters, the two leads, and even Sharon Tate, really, but Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio, they both tell such different um, stories about who they are, and and they're both, you know, it's it's for me, it's really hard to sit here and say I prefer one over the other because both of their mm-hmm. stories are so fascinating, and it helps that they're both really watchable actors, especially obviously Brad Pitt, but. Um, both of them are, you know, and, and Leonardo DiCaprio's hilarious, like, crisis of conscience, you know, of character, mm-hmm. like his self, his crippling self-doubt. And, you know, and he meets with Julia Butters, the, you know, the precocious young girl who, you know, who tells him, that was the best performance I've ever seen. <laughs> it, like, makes him cry. <laughs> like, it's mm-hmm. just so great. And, and the scene, the really the the absolute, you know, the best part for Leo. And honestly, if he hadn't won for 
the Revenant, he would he would win win Best Actor for this. But um, but the scene in the trailer, you know, where he can't remember his lines, and he's mm. like, "I am not going to drink anymore," and then he drinks the next second, and then he's throwing things off. That that whole sequence, and you know, in the trailer is just really one of the best scenes Tarantino has ever filmed. Um, and his character up until the very, I hope that everybody listening to this has seen once upon a time in Hollywood. Um, but if you haven't, here comes a big spoiler, but, but, um, and just, you know, mute it for a few minutes, but the end scene this last time, like, I think the first time I saw it, I was kind of in shock as to how it all went down. And so I wasn't really paying attention to the very last scene, but Leonardo DiCaprio's delivery, um, at the last, you know, Ryan, cause you've seen it three times. So you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about, but, but at the last part where he said, <laughs> he's like talking about the break-ins, his comic timing is so perfect. He's like, yeah, yeah. He killed two of them. And, and then I torched the other <laughs> <No>. one. <laughs> so and then so I torched the other hand about it. Right. Yes. <laughs> he's so offhand and matter of fact, and describing something that is indescribable and in doing it in such a simple way. I just thought it was so, I was laughing so hard this last time that I saw it all through the movie, but really that last part where he's like, <laughs> and I torched the other one. Just the idea that the whole flamethrower sequence would come to an end that way. Like, it, it, it had such right. a big payoff. And it had been foreshadowed earlier, and you didn't know, you didn't realize until the end that it was going to come back in, into play. But the fact, <laughs> too, like you said, that he had such a crisis of confidence that so many times yeah. throughout the movie. Confidence, but that's the word. Ultimately, he does this the, the epitome of cool. He and Brad Pitt, uh, both Rick Dalton, and, and uh, what is the, what's his stuntman's name? I forget the character's Cliff, name, but Cliff they're both Booth. just the epitome yeah. of cool, and they are so generous with each other as actors and as characters on screen that, um, like you said, they can delineate their differences so well and not step on each other's toes in any way. I mean, it's just beautiful to watch. It I mean, is so beautiful more, to watch. It, Brad Pitt in that last scene is when he's frying on acid and mm-hmm. uh, Tex Watson. <laughs> walks through the door. I think I need to write something to people about, um, about like I, this guy I know who writes me on Facebook. Um, he, I don't think he's going to listen to this, but he's a really good friend of mine. He's the one who was sitting next to Michael Moore, um, on a plane and, and said that he knew me and believe it or not, this actually happened. And, and Michael Moore said that he knew me too. And he was, you know, he thought I was very passionate, quote unquote. Um, even though I've attacked him repeatedly, and relentlessly on Twitter, <laughs> but um, and I was ashamed of that. But um, but anyway, this guy I know, he he writes to me from time to time. Pretty neat dude. He he actually um, worked with Bruce Dern. I'll, I'll forward you his. I cut this out. I'll forward you his uh, his message to me today, Ryan, so you could see the both you guys, so you can see the movies that he's done and stuff. He's just this okay. Facebook guy, right? But he was asking. He said he's he's doing some polls of people that he knows in the Academy. He's an Academy member. And uh, and by far, everybody's saying Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is their favorite movie, right? But he, he followed that up with, but young people seem to be confused about the ending. So I feel like I need oh, to write Jesus. something that explains... Well, my yeah. daughter's boyfriend didn't even know who Charles Manson was. Right? I mean, you know, I, when you the first thing that you wrote for the site about it, you didn't want to give away any spoilers, so you couldn't get into the plot details and about how the plot differed from the actual recorded history of what happened. But you spent a lot of time giving someone, giving everyone who wasn't 
very well aware of what it was all about. It was a primer that you wrote. You, you, you really gave a lot of good background in the very first piece that you wrote on the site. If anyone had read that, they would know they would have a good background about being prepped about everything you need to know about Charles Manson, yeah. right? Look, so to, it's a but it is a yeah, it is amazing. I just want to say it is amazing that there are people who don't know. It is amazing. And, yeah, and I feel sorry for them because they it means that they wouldn't. There's no way they could enjoy the movie properly. Well, for listeners who haven't who don't understand you know, 1969 Hollywood and, and the events leading up to this, go and listen to Karina Longworth. You must remember this, mm-hmm. her series about the Manson family. Um, that is, that will tell you everything that you need to know to be able to fully appreciate what That's goes right. on in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because she does such a fantastic job of just telling you all of the nuances in this story. It's so much more than just a brutal murder. It's 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 the Beach Boys. It's, yep. it's you know, it's, it's just... It's just so it's it's Charlie Manson becomes almost incestuous with Hollywood at that point. And it and it really helps elevate, I think, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Absolutely. The more you know about the Manson murders, the more you understand the ending, because it is it is how people who Tarantino is obviously my age. So that means that he was around. I remember being terrified as a kid because um, I grew up in Topanga around that same area of, of Manson and that same sort of you know, hippie free love world was, was my childhood. Um, so that was 1969. I was four years old, but I do remember being too scared to sleep at night after the Manson murders. But remember, I mean, well, okay. So if you really want to know about the Manson murders, yes, listen to Charles Manson's Hollywood on, um, you must remember this. It's absolutely, I've listened to it three times all the way through. I think it's incredible. It's, I think the best thing that's ever been written or, or, you know, done at all about the Manson murders. Absolutely the best thing. You can't do any better than that. But how many episodes is it? Is it, is it just one episode? Or no, it's, like, it's 10, I think. Oh, wow. No, it's, yeah, it's great. so good. And, and I, the one that I listened to, I've listened to more than is the, is the night of the murders. You could go and you can, you know, she goes all the way back to his early days and, and, you know, various elements of the story that were peripheral to just the murders, for instance, um, because there's so many weird people involved. Terry Melcher, mm-hmm. for instance, who was at the house on Cielo Drive but no longer lived there. It was just happenstance mm-hmm. that Sharon Tate happened to be living there and Roman Polanski. He only went there because of Terry Melcher, and Terry Melcher had promised him a record deal, but when he heard his, his music, he was like, no, man, I'm not going to do it. And so he felt slighted. And, and meanwhile, on Spawn, Spawn Ranch, he felt like a god. And so mm-hmm. nobody slights a god. And of course, they have to be murdered. Mm-hmm. And so he, uh, just to clarify, Manson thought that's where Melcher lived. But yes. actually, Melcher moved out, and Polanski and Sharon Tate had moved in. And he, it was also the coincidence that they had their friends over that night who also met a terrible Well, he, he knew that he didn't live there didn't. anymore because he had gone to visit the house. Remember, that's in the movie where he goes Okay, over. right, right. But right, he yeah. did, uh, right. for whatever reason, and it's never been explained by anybody, he never he, he only sent them up there because he knew the house. And, and nobody, mm-hmm. even Karina Longworth, can't speculate on this, and Charles Manson would certainly never say. He met Sharon Tate that day, that night. Mm-hmm. So you don't mm-hmm. know that he met her and he said, wow, that's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, and I'll never get her. So I'm going right. to have her murdered uh, instead. You know, mm-hmm. Nobody knows that for sure. Nobody can say that that's what happened to motivate him to do that because he then sent them out the next night or you know, soon after that to kill the, the LaBiancas. Um, mm-hmm. he, he really did want to 
in his own crazy way, he, he thought he was creating, um, starting a race war. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if he really thought that or not. Who knows? He was so insane. The dude was just nuts. Well, I guess it, it, it like Melcher was his first target. And that's what, like, as he said, that's what brought him to the house. But even when he found out that Melcher had, what didn't live there anymore in his mind, maybe it's still the same type of person who lives there. It's still Hollywood people mm-hmm. who live there and they're, they're, yeah. they're, they're white. And if I can make it look like this is a, this yes, is a crime exactly. um, against uh, another race against white, uh, wealthy, privileged white people. And yep. that's how I can, it doesn't matter who lives. hundred percent. Yes. Are. So that was, that's the weird thing about it is it's a lot like kind of like now because it was a counterculture revolution coming to a head. It was 1969, so it was right after 1978 or 1968. So it was it was uh, feminism. It was black power on the rise. Um, at the same time, it was it was very much the the Nixonian. He had just been elected by a very slim margin, but he would win by a landslide in 1972. But um, but it was very much the silent majority versus the very loud counterculture movement, and of which Manson was part of, right, or seemed to be. He wasn't really, as Karina Longworth points out. He was just he was just whatever he was. He was a criminal. He was a manipulator. He was he was a strange dude. But he used that counter counterculture movement to draw in people, basically rich, bored, young teenage girls, who saw in him. Uh, he, he sort of empowered them and made them feel loved and seen and and brainwashed them basically by, you know, he would have these nights of putting everybody on acid and he would be the only sober one and he would, they would all, he would order them to all have sex with each other and he got them completely under his control. So there was nothing they could really do to defy him because of the, the way that the structure was set up. But at the same time, their anti-establishment rhetoric, which you hear a lot of now in the Bernie Sanders movement. And, you know, and every time I hear that, I think, God, that's, didn't they learn anything from 1969? Mm. You know, that never turns out very well because, it, you know, it's a really easy thing to blame. Nobody really wants to live in a structural society that's breaking down like that. But, um, I mean, maybe they do, but in 1969, that's, that's what sort of shut it down was the Manson family, but because they were writing piggies on the wall and, you know, they were making it very much an anti-rich violent crime against these people to, to quote unquote, start the race war or whatever it was. But, and um, mass killings are, are a weekly thing nowadays, but nothing like that had ever happened on such a scale in, in 1969 before. So it was such so brand new to everyone that it wasn't, no one was jaded yet. Everyone was still, just shocked to the core about it, right? And yeah. So, like you said, it, it changed the psyche of the country. I'm sure. In it ways was the that weirdest the thing. Now don't. It's still the weirdest thing. Like I, I, you know, I'm often just stop and think. You know, it's a hot August night. You're Sharon Tate. You're nine months pregnant. You're living in this house. Your husband's in Europe. And you're hanging out with your friends. You're getting high, and in walks the Manson family. Like who could right? ever prepare for such no. a thing? And then after the murders, um, nobody knew who did it. It took a really long time. And the only reason that they finally figured it out was that um, Sadie, who's in the movie, <laughs> gets torched in the movie, um, mm-hmm. is, uh, is confesses stupidly mm-hmm. because she was mm-hmm. bragging about it. They were proud of it. You know, They mm-hmm. thought that they deserved There's actually a really good movie that came out this year called Charlie Says. 
And it stars mm. Merritt Weaver and it's directed by Mary Heron, who made American Psycho. Nobody okay. saw it. Nobody talks about it. But it's great because it's about this female social worker who has to talk to the three Manson girls who are in jail while Charlie is being tried. And it talks. It shows how brainwashed they were all through. And finally, at the very end, spoiler alert, she um, she gets through to them, and then they realize what they did, and then they're like, "Oh my god!" But it takes them a really long time to become unbrainwashed from that. I mean, I think for all of us back then, what scared us so much was partly the murders, but it was also the fact that they could he could brainwash these girls to do this thing, and that they would show up at the courthouse with their X's on their foreheads and. And shave their heads and act so crazy. Like, all that scared everybody. The the mm-hmm. cult mentality that he could manipulate these girls to do these things and that they still stayed with him and that he had this. And it's even weirder and creepier than, than what everybody knows because they continued to murder people. They just never got caught for it. And everybody was, like, afraid for their lives. It's such a fascinating story. And anybody who doesn't know anything about it should find out more. It's, it's really... Sure. I mean, if you... I mean, like, as I said earlier, I mean, if you want to enjoy this movie, you really have to be have some background about it. You have to understand yeah. the background. And we know a lot of our listeners do because a lot of listeners, we're our listeners of, are of all ages, and some of them live through it. And, and or, or even if they missed it by 10 years, they saw Helter Skelter or other things that have been published or written about it over the years. But unless you have that grounding in it, there, I saw so many criticisms of the movie that were just ridiculous because of the ignorance about what was really going on. Mm-hmm. Sasha, you've talked many times about the fact that people were upset that the that the that the murderers were um, had violence done against them. Yeah. But you wouldn't feel that way if you realize if you knew the violence that they did against in real in real life against. Um, against the people that they murdered. you it, It's like everyone knows who Nazis are, so everyone could understand in Inglorious Bastards why that ending worked. Yeah, but or, they can't understand why the violence is perpetrated against the killers in the, of the Manson family because they didn't actually do anything. They, had, they, didn't get, they hadn't done it yet. Exactly. But this they, is a movie that exists. If they hadn't been yeah. stopped, they would have done it. Right. They would have done worse, right? So how does he even yeah. start to educate his viewers on that when it hasn't even happened? And in fact, the, the movie's about to argue that it will never happen. Yeah, so, right. you know, yeah. And I, he, he doesn't oh. try to, which uh, to his credit, he doesn't even attempt to give any sort of he he just assumes that you're going to know or you or you won't and you'll either get it or you don't. And I'm just thinking <laughs> of when Brad Pitt, when Brad Pitt says he said he was the devil and he was he was doing some devil. But as far as the the cult situation, that's another thing about the Spawn Ranch sequence that is so disturbing is that it's one of the best depictions of a cult mentality mm-hmm. that I've ever seen on film because you see how they all of a sudden they coalesce into a into a a group mentality when they realize that they have been infiltrated by someone who's an outsider yeah. who may wish them harm all of a sudden they they close ranks around the the invader right and it's it's it's, it's chilling it's chilling and it's so specific that's what i one of the things i love about it is that tarantino obviously knows so much about the manson murders of course because he knows so much about everything that he that he puts in specifics that, that only people who really know the story well would recognize. Like, for instance, the I think I talked about this before, but um, Brad Pitt is a guy with a dog, right? And the whole thing is mm-hmm. about him and his dog, and that that's pivotal to the end of the movie. So he spends a lot of time mm-hmm. showing us his Brad Pitt's relationship with his dog, right? So that we understand how he's able to... <laughs> 
<laughs> direct his dog to do these things at the end. And um, exactly, but because the thing his is, relationship is, with his dog is he's really strict with his dog, and his dog understands what he can do, what he should do, and what he shouldn't do, and he knows when he should do it and when yep. not to do it. It's yeah, so that so. dog is so cute. But the the um, the, <laughs> the in the real life, there was a guy in a a caretaker who in a in a house with a dog, and he lived. The cops asked him, didn't you hear anything? And he said, no, I never did. And, and of course, nobody believed that, that he didn't hear anything. And for a while, he was a suspect. You can hear that, by the way, in Karina Longworth's podcast. She talks about that. But, um, but that's what's funny about it is that he's sort of riffing on this idea of what if the guy who had the dog actually did something like what if they broke into his house instead mm, but he happened to mm-hmm. be a stuntman who's a really good fighter and is really tough and is you know used to living through really life-threatening situations because he's a stuntman you know mm-hmm. and uh, and he puts leo out in the pool <laughs> with headphones mm-hmm. on you know well see that's that's another that's another annoying complaint i hear that i've heard over the past few months about the movie some people say oh there are just so many unlikely coincidences that make all of this come together at the end it's so it's so um, absurd that it that it's just so unlikely that so so many things could have all come together like that. But you, as we've been talking about, the whole situation was all happenstance. It was all happened just because by coincidence and oh the, my God. The, the worst kind of serendipity that anyone can imagine. Just because talking about being in all the wrong places at all yeah. the wrong times, the way that things came together that night, it was just by a pure accident no it is so weird because Wojciech Frykowski like he survived the holocaust he survived the Mm. nazis and he lived out his last days being stabbed by these psychos you know Mm. that's what that's what gets you about this story is is the cruelty the girl that gets torched at the end she's the cruelest of them all what she does to Sharon Tate is horrible Mm. like it's you can't even wrap your mind around it as horrible as school shootings are as bad as the things we've heard I don't think anybody gets to the point of share of uh, Sadie stabbing her in the stomach while she begs for her baby's life. Like that is on a whole different level, you know, of gruesome. And, and to know that in 1969 and to have that happen and, and to be Roman Polanski and to have people accuse you of those murders when mm-hmm. your life is just shattered by, uh, by the death of your beloved wife. Like, I, I don't even know how anybody lives through that. But um, anyway, it's a great movie. I hope he wins Best Picture, and I hope he wins Best Director. He deserves it. And uh, he's made a lot of movies, and he's an American treasure. You know, I don't love all of his movies, but I appreciate his talent, and I think his time has finally come. Silence. <laughs> uh, no, no, I, no, I agree. Think, I, I was actually looking something up just now that I wanted, I was about to say something. I want to make sure that I'm not misspeaking, but I do. It's not, I don't think it's going to, it doesn't make any difference because I think the movie is going to overcome whatever, whatever the blockage has been against this happening in, in the past 25 or 30 years, I think is, is going to finally not, well, I'll just say, uh, ever since Sony bought Columbia Studios, Columbia has never won Best Picture. And that was nineteen right. what nineteen eighty four, because Columbia Sony has never won one Best Picture. Mm. I think I don't believe, and and ever since Sony and Columbia became a thing, yeah. And um and Columbia used to be a major player, and it used to win Best Picture on a regular basis, as all the other studios did. But suddenly, it hasn't won. I think the last time a Columbia Picture won Best Picture was uh, The Last Emperor, and even that was a movie that they acquired. It's not a movie that they produced in-house it was a movie that was made overseas and they just bought the distribution rights for yeah. it 
Well, and so that's how long it's been since uh, since Columbia has won Best Picture. I would and only this, and, say, and obviously uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Sony. Columbia. Yeah, and I agree with mm-hmm. that, and I understand that. And I think that's real. However, I will add mm-hmm. one more thing to that: mm-hmm. Netflix. The fact that its competitor could be Netflix might tip it in the fa- in the. Right, right. It uh, might. I don't know. We don't know yet, but something tells me they'd rather give it to. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, for I mean, I'm not even saying that it's because Sony is not an American company, but I did. I, for there was a, a a period of time when I wondered what was going on, why Columbia, and Sony could would never win Best Picture, and I started to wonder if it was some sort of. Uh, thing that maybe they didn't like the idea of a foreign company coming to Hollywood and they just wanted to keep it. They wanted to keep it among the American companies. Absolutely. And I think that's, uh, that's right. But I think that Netflix is even more of a threat to them. uh, Sure. Exactly. That was a really good point to bring up. Um, I, was it, what year did the player come out? Um, that was, I think I wanted, yeah, 92, 93. Yeah. I, I remember in the player when he's giving people the studio tour, he's like kissing up to, to the to the Japanese visitors because he's hoping that they will invest in the studio and that must have been like a big still a big deal and even in 1992 yeah. that they, that Altman would put that in this movie that he would be making a commentary about the fact that here are these Japanese investors coming to tour an American mm-hmm. studio because it was still a touchy subject and that's yes. why he included it in, in in the player. I agree with that. So, yeah, I do. I think it's also going to hurt. Like think of all the other thing weird things that like Disney has bought Fox. Fox mm-hmm. Studios isn't even Fox Studios anymore. It's now under Disney's control. So I think that's going to be an interesting thing. Like that, That's why this is such an interesting Oscar year and that if anybody um, really wanted to write about it, like an actual journalist, they could find a really interesting Oscar year in terms of those kind of things, like the fact that it was Sony, that people were, you know, that kind of context association in their mind of foreign company, Japanese, bad, you know, Mm. Um, stop them but then you've got Netflix and then you've got Disney and you've got superhero mm-hmm. movies you've got all these things impacting the race whereas Tarantino is standing up for like I was tripping out watching um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last night because you know when I my brief time at Columbia Film School I was actually got a scholarship as a projectionist and so I, I ran mm. some films and I, I learned how you do the changing of the reel after you see the little dot and then eight seconds later the reel mm-hmm. changes and that's something you don't mm-hmm. see in digital movies, and most oh, of the right. movies are yeah. digital. The little, the, the little blip in the corner. Mm-hmm. Right. But you see yeah. that in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So, and he's very much a theaters, film traditionalist, you know. Mm-hmm. And if anybody makes starts making noise about that at a time when things are changing really fast, uh, he could benefit greatly in an Oscar race. Um, if sure, absolutely. I mean, you, Sasha, you mentioned earlier about the way that he got a little bit choked up watching the neon lights come on at, at, at sunset and when all the lights came on around town and how beautifully that was done. I remember I got choked up at the same, in the same way that when uh, Brad Pitt first drives home after the first day that we meet him and he drives home to his trailer and he lives nearby a drive-in theater, right? Mm. And as he drives past the drive-in theater, the camera is like a, um, 
uh, zooms up over the top of the drive-in theater screen, and you see all the cars parked facing the theater. You don't see the t the 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 the, the drive-in screen, but you hear the concession music, the concession mm. stand music before between before the movie starts, and it's the music that anyone who's ever been to a to a drive-in theater recognizes that. Even if you, even if it was in the '70s or '80s or even '90s, because that music never changed. They always kept that same kind of hokey kind of 19, late 1960s music. And it, when I heard that well up, and as the as the camera soars above the driving theater screen, I mean, I it's you know makes you choke up because mm -hmm. it's it's a lot it's it's a lost experience that, yeah. that people don't don't have don't have that anymore. And his this nostalgia for movies is just so contagious in this movie and it's just gorgeous and it's, a, it's such a great feeling. I agree. I, I really do. Um, so I saw Richard Jewell and um, I really liked it, obviously, because I'm a Clint Eastwood fan, but um, but I can already tell that my friend told me today that that uh, people are starting to get upset about one element of the story. So the question's going to be, are people going to be able to you know, is that how how bad is that going to bother people, right? So mm -hmm. is it going to be enough to totally derail the movie, or isn't it? I, I can tell you this that the Paul Walter Hauser gives you know by far one of the best performances. It's it's nuts because there's so many male actors this year; they're all good. You could just pick any five of them at random, and they'd be great contenders. And there's so many of them. Um, he's exceptional in the part uh, as Richard Jewell. Exceptional. Really, that's what acting's all about, is what he does. But the problem is, is that there's a Olivia Wilde character who's very sexy, kind of cartoonish. She's she's one of um, a few supporting women that I've seen this year that, that really, I'm, I'm sorry, I just have to say this, and please don't hate me, people, but they actually mm. ruin the movies that they're in. There's three of them that I can think mm. of. Um, and Olivia Wilde, she doesn't ruin the movie, but she's kind of acting in a different movie than everybody else. She's her performance is really over the top, and um, and she's sexy and she's fun to watch. But um, but for whatever reason, the screenwriters and, and Clint Eastwood thought it was thought it was like fine to put in a scene where she trades information from an FBI guy for sex, and mm. so she says, you know, give me this information. Now, granted, it is John Hamm. Twist my arm, okay? <laughs> right, yeah. But it's not like it's a big, you know, a big leap to sleep with John Hamm. But um, she, uh, and then when they're done giving information, then she says, okay, let's go. And they go out to the car for a quickie, right? So it's 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 a kind of a dumb choice writing-wise. Like, I don't know why you would put that in there. She's dead and he's dead. There's no way to prove it or disprove it. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. Nobody knows. But and I understand. She a, so she was a real life journalist, right? And wh yeah. where, 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 uh, for whom? For for, for the Atlanta or? Journal Constitution. Oh, okay, all right. I just wanted to get that so. straight because I I do get the sense that part of the message of the movie, part of the reason probably why Clint Eastwood wanted to make the movie is because he wanted to do make a movie that was a commentary on, on yes. how media can get things wrong, right? Right. How media. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I just want to clarify that, and it, I just I wondered if it was specifically TV media or if it was just journalists in well, general. So, so it was 1996, and so there wasn't mm -hmm. a lot yeah. of um, 
basically he's not as as mean about it as you'd think like for instance she's not portrayed as a as a liberal particularly she's not portrayed as a republican either but she's certainly not a bleeding heart so he's not Mm. he's not specifically targeting the left but um but it is a case of the all the characters in the movie are too hard on her whether or not that's how she was in real life it doesn't work for the movie you know you can't have Mm. like all these people you know screaming at her about how horrible she is. John Hamm does it. Sam Rockwell does it. The audience does it. And then try to redeem her at the end. No, that's nobody's going to buy it. So to me, she's like kind of the movie's biggest problem is her character. But if you take her out of it and you just understand that the true story is the FBI guy never should have leaked that information. And to do so was very irresponsible and for the reporter to run with the story was very irresponsible because they basically for a scoop they ruined this guy's life and even Mm -hmm. to this day people think that he's the guy who who blew up the the centennial park and obviously it was eric rudolph and he had nothing to do with it and the movie shows he's kind of you know he's not exactly playing with a full deck and he's not really He's an odd dude, and he lives with his mom, and he doesn't have a girlfriend, and he, you know, they think he's gay. He might be gay, but he acts very defensive when they accuse him of it, um, but because he doesn't understand why they're doing that, you know? He probably doesn't even know if he's gay or not, honestly, the way the movie portrays it. Like, he doesn't have mm. sexuality in the movie. He's just, he's just kind of an odd dude. And, you know, he doesn't pay his taxes. He, he has guns he's collected. Um, so, you know, all that stuff makes him look really guilty. Like he fits the profile all the way across. Mm-hmm. The, everything he did fits the profile, but it still wasn't a story that you should, you shouldn't have done that. And they shouldn't have done that for a scoop. They shouldn't have accused him and acted like he was guilty when they had absolutely no evidence. And in fact, they couldn't prove that he even had time to set off the bomb. Like if you walked the perimeter in the time, it sh- it clearly showed that he didn't have time. So the FBI when they figured that out, then they said, oh, he must have had an accomplice. You know, Mm. it was just a weird story all the way around. And he got railroaded. He ended up suing the paper. um, And I think NBC News or something. So he sued them all for for defamation. Um, It's hard in the era of Trump to really sit there and root for this movie unless you're like a Trump supporter who believes that the media is corrupt and is really willing to turn them into the enemy, you know? It's hard in this era when Trump and and people like Devin Nunes and other Republicans are simply lying to the American people and saying out loud and hearing that the media is corrupt. Like, that is so dangerous. So that's the problem, I think, for the movie is that how much appetite do people have for that right now? You know, Clint is almost 90 years old and it's sort of his philosophy anyway. And he, you know, he's not in that reality so i could understand why he would make the movie all of that said the acting is incredible do i think it's going to change the uh race i don't know sam rockwell's amazing um the lead is great kathy bates they're all great i i just don't know if there's enough time for them to to crack in to i just have no idea this is such a weird year what do you guys think uh can i back up a minute and ask you about so this character the journalist um do they use your real name in the movie? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do they? Oh, wow. Okay. See, yeah. well, why? Yeah. I mean, uh, that they have seems to. like just, just almost here. It's, I mean, even if she's, even if, so she's dead, she's doesn't, she's not alive anymore, and neither is the epic. But I mean, she's got family. 
right? Doesn't yeah, it look like that. Apparently, it, she she has a very well known reputation for being a very cutthroat, very aggressive reporter. Uh-huh. It's it's one thing to be an aggressive reporter, and it's another thing to to trade favors for sex. The only reason I can think of that they did it was that Olivia Wilde is a beautiful, sexy woman. And in Hollywood rules, you don't put a beautiful, sexy woman in a movie and have her not have sex with someone. It's like a mm. loaded gun. You know, sooner or later, someone's going to shoot the gun. If you have a beautiful woman in a movie, sooner or later, she's going to sleep with somebody. But I think mm. they should have picked it. In my opinion, they should have had them have sex and then in bed, have him slip that information to her. And then her say, I'm going to use it. And him saying, you can't use that. And her saying, I'm going to use it. And then she uses it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. but, so it's not as if she bargained for it. It's just yeah. that it was like an after effect. It was like pillow talk. That he, it was more his fault than hers. Yeah. But the way they portray it in the film, it's like she she bargains for it. Yep, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then he... Yeah, see, it know. seems like the movie has would be able to make a strong enough point about the point that he's trying to make without damaging... Yeah. The, the the movie by 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 fictionalizing something that can't be proven that is also so um, slanderous. Yeah, particularly with with Booksmart in the same year, which is you know miles away from that kind of yeah. behavior. Mm-hmm. So it was weird. I mean, I, I I can I can work my mind around it, and I can see it in a different way, in a less literal way, and see like she was just the kind of person that thought it might be fun to have sex with him. And that she didn't necessarily mm-hmm. need that to, she didn't say to him, if, if you give me this information, I'll give you a blowjob. She just basically flirts with him yeah, and comes on to him and then he gives her the information and then she pays him back for it. But they don't make the agreement ahead of time. So it's all very subtle and suggested. And, and when she says, let's go, he goes, this is really happening? And she's like, yeah. And they go and mm. have sex. Like he isn't even expecting it. And it gives people, anyone who may be inclined to look for something about the movie to attack, and we know there are going to be lots of people out there who want to do that just because of the reputation that Clint has amongst so many people in in Hollywood, a a, 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 a tainted reputation, a damaged reputation to a certain extent. It looks like he would be so, so extra careful not to give anyone a way to do that to his movie. Or the opposite. He 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 doesn't like people telling him what he he can and can't yeah, do. And that, yeah, to do I was it. about to. I was going to say earlier, he's at the age when he's like, "Fuck it, I do what I want. Exactly. I say what I want." And especially yeah. if someone yeah. says, "You really shouldn't put this scene in there," mm-hmm. and then he'll be defiant about it. Why can't I? You know. Yeah. And um, I can see that. So I don't feel like, you know, <laughs> me. I defend people, even people that are problematic and stuff. But and I'm not. I don't think anybody should be attacking a 90 year old Clint. I really don't. But at no, the same time, right. I think it's legit and valid criticism of the movie to bring it up. You know. It uh, also could be. I mean, I hate to be cynical about it, but I mean, he knows where his money is right now. He knows the people who are going to go to his movies and the people who oh, are yeah. going to avoid his movies. And he knows that American Sniper. Yeah. Didn't didn't make a uh, half a billion dollars by 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 um ma- uh, uh, casting doubt about whether I, or not the sniper was doing the right thing or not i can promise you and i'm sorry to have to say this but and it makes me sad and sick and honestly i wish it wasn't true but i can tell you that there's probably more people in america who will agree with clint eastwood about the media than there are the opposite people oh you know? for sure right yeah. even 
even even even we liberals are disappointed in in our in our own um, supposedly liberal news channels. Yeah. We we're criticism we we're critical of our own journalists because of we don't think that they handle things correctly sometimes. But it is There's, weird to see yeah. a parallel right now of the impeachment and how Trump is calling himself a victim of the media and everything like. It's such a weird parallel, and he will definitely glom onto this movie, and you know, mm. absolutely. And I, I agree with you that when when he held American Sniper at AFI, it got the same kind of reactions from people. Like this is too right wing. It's too pro war. It's you know, it's never gonna. And then it made all that money, and then of course it got a Best Picture nomination and a Best Actor for Bradley Cooper, and almost a Best Director for Clint Eastwood. Um, yeah. So if Richard Jewell makes a lot of money, it'll erase all that stuff. But do you think it will, though? I mean, do people really know. know who Richard Jewell is or, you know, and, and I, I don't mean this in a negative way, but do they care who he is? Like, do that has, will I mean, the advertise the advertisements for the film are weird. And do, will they make people think, you know, here's an unsung American hero like, you know, American Sniper, because that's that's a war hero movie. Yeah. So that's very easy to to gravitate toward. But, you know, if 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 it's if Richard Jewell is the hero of your film, are people really just going to even though there isn't an anti-media message in there? Are they? Really no, there is an anti-media message yeah. for sure. Yeah. Right. Right. But are they going to gravitate toward that in the same way that they did with American Sniper? I don't think I, quite I the same it. way because he's not like you say he's not he's not a known hero. But you know you you will if you are inclined to be on Team Trump and you are inclined to be um, anti the media, what you consider to be the media railroading of Trump, which a lot of people do, then it might do well with with the forgotten population out there. You know what? I just happened to look, because I, I will admit, I didn't want to speak out because I'm, it's embarrassing. I, I wasn't sure who Richard Jewell was, and I wondered why that, that, that I have a gap in my knowledge about that. And I, now that I realize it happened in 1997, I wasn't mm-hmm. living in America at that time. I was overseas, and I, and I wasn't keeping up with, with international news like this on this level. And so I totally missed the whole thing about what was going on with the Atlanta bombing and everything in 1997. I was out partying my butt off. I wasn't, I wasn't thinking about this kind of stuff in in 97 because I was in Bangkok. Right. But so now, but to to look at that up just now, because to refresh my memory about why it was, I'm so ignorant about this. I see now that the, that the movie is based on a, on an article called American nightmare. The Ballad mm. of Richard Jewell. The Ballad of Richard Jewell. So there's a, he's a folk hero. Mm-hmm. That right. was the original title of the film, I thought, too. Yeah, He's really? a folk the hero to people like Jewell. Sarah yeah. Palin. Yeah. Yes. You know what uh, I mean? So they're absolutely playing to that audience. Right. And, he, and fuck the rest of us, right? Fuck in, not, not fuck the rest of us, but fuck anyone who doesn't, um, who doesn't, who's not in line with that kind of well thing. anybody who's going to get mad about yeah. the sex stuff in it is people that mm-hmm. they're not going to care about but but at the same yeah. time mm-hmm. you know like i think that it is a, it is incredible that the paul walter hauser can give that kind of performance even within that framework like i mean really it is a, an, a breathtakingly good performance and it's so good yeah. that it elevates the material both Sam Rockwell and him, and even Kathy Bates, they make it a character drama, and you're able to step outside of all that other poppycock, which I wasn't able to do with American Sniper. I never was able to 
get out of that. I'm watching a crazy right wing propaganda movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, about <laughs> you know? about a guy who enjoys killing dark people, dark, you know, <laughs> exactly, and, uh, and, all, and women and children. He enjoys shooting women and children from a distance. Yeah, I never <laughs> I was, was like, able yeah, to yeah. separate, but with this movie, because the characters are so well drawn by these actors, especially Hauser, like the specifics of this character from an acting perspective. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, I have to say it's really, and Sam Rockwell, that's what saves the movie are the actors. Um, and you know, me, I'm, I'm really disgusted with, with everything that's been going on. I, I don't really feel disgust with the media so much. Um, I do, I am feeling a lot of resentment towards the left right now. And only because I feel like we just can't seem to get our shit together to pull this thing mm. off. And we're so worried about dumb things that don't matter. And I can understand why people are losing patience with us, you know, mm. and, and, uh, and I'm sorry that I don't think this impeachment thing worked out very well in our favor. Um, because he had, he fucking hail, held all of the key witnesses and he wouldn't let them testify. So, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't get the key witnesses. Um, and he's just playing it better. He's playing a better game of media chess. So so I, I didn't feel when I watched it that it was... Uncut Gems, on the other hand, made me feel like I've had too much Trump, too much trauma in the last many years. I can't sit through this movie. <laughs> this movie is asking too much of me. <laughs> but Richard Jewell, like, I was so into these actors that I was able to kind of overcome the the really embarrassing because, you know, they're so good that they keep you involved in the character study in the stories. So you're spending less time sitting there going, you know, wait a second, you know, until Olivia Wilde comes on screen and then you're just like, Oh, that's bad. Mm -hmm. You know, why would you do that? You know? So does Kathy Bates break the top five then? I don't think so, personally. Well, you know, the women are weak this year, though. Let me look at Best Supporting it. You know, Best Actress is so thin. Just to uh, reiterate, the reason we brought this up in the first place is because uh, Clarence had the idea that maybe we would, before we signed off, that we would talk about the way that Richard Jewell might... Um, oh, okay. And I just uh, yammered on and on. I'm sorry. We, it might create some some turmoil in the Best Supporting Actress category. All right, actor so and here's... Yeah. They're very, very, okay, so we'll talk Oscar for a minute. So there are there are competing narratives as to how the Best Supporting Actress is going to go, uh, Best Supporting Actress category is going to go. Right now, for me, I have Laura Dern, Margot Robbie um, for Bombshell, Jennifer Lopez for Hustlers, dot, dot, dot. Um, and I also have Divine Joy Randolph for Dolomite is My Name, which I know I'm the only person in the punditry world that's predicting her, but I think she's great. And, you know, I'm allowed one advocacy prediction every year, and that's that. Um, I think then you have a fifth slot. For instance, I don't think that it's going to be 100% white people in all categories. So I do think that mm. Divine has a good shot. Everybody's talking about her as a standout. She probably has the best mm-hmm. chance of, of anybody in Dolomite. Um, so then you have Scarlett Johansson and Jojo Rabbit, and then I put Kathy Bates right behind her for Richard Jewell. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you've mm-hmm. also got Florence Pugh, Little Women. You've got the big threat is Shujin Chow for or Shujin Chow for the farewell. Right. She's the one that I would watch for to take that fifth slot, more so than probably Kathy Bates. But you never know. It just depends on how much they like the movie. But like I say... I'm not sure how passionately involved people are going to get with with Richard Jewell, but look, man, they went for American Sniper. 
What do I yeah, know? Yeah, I was going to say, and it's not, it, it, the, the money got everyone's attention, for sure. But, I mean, we underestimate how many conservatives there are in among the Academy voters. Yes, and how many uh, Clint Eastwood fans uh, there are. Yes, right. Uh-huh. Um, they, they're quiet. The reason we don't know how many there are and we don't know who they are is because most of them are, are just keep their mouth shut about it because they don't want the flack that they would catch, that they see the... James Wood catching, for instance, you know, uh, very few people want to be outspoken about it like James Woods are. And so they but they have the feelings that they just don't James don't Woods. don't get a chance. But, they, you know, they you know what I'm saying they they have feelings they have they have they have ideological leanings that that only come out when they have an anonymous ballot that they filling out in their bathroom with the door locked. You know, mm. they can do that on their ballot on their Oscar ballot and they don't have to worry about anyone pointing the finger at them as individuals. Right, right. Yeah. So so anyway, I've been disagreeing with what you said about, it. you know, American Sniper did it, so this could do it too. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm keeping my... my um... Now, the problem with it is that it's best actor heavy, and so there's so many movies that are best actor heavy. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about Richard Jewell. I just don't know. Like, to me, it's a big question mark. Um, I, I'm seeing 1917 on Sunday, and maybe that'll just wipe everything out. I don't think, you know, and look, there are a lot of movies that could push in at the last minute, like Knives Out. Um, there's even Motherless Brooklyn, which, you know, has a huge cast. That could that could show up in SAG. And mm-hmm. I don't think anybody's predicting that, but that could... Nobody on Twitter predicted that when they were... I asked them for SAG Ensemble predictions. But that could really show up there. It's got so many actors in it. Um so there are a lot of movies that are hovering on the fringes that nobody knows how the race is going to go, whether they'll get in, like Little Women, you know, or The Farewell, mm. or Waves, you know, or Bombshell. Like, there are so many movies that we just don't even know. I, you know, but yes, look, the National Board of Review typically picks Clint Eastwood movies. It's not unheard of that they pick him for Best Director. I think they did with American Sniper. And that mm. helped push it into the race. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure that they did. And so if, if they give, if the National Board of Review at the end of November gives their prize to Clint Eastwood in a big way, that'll push it through. I think that a lot of the mistakes people make when they're reading the Oscar race is that they go by kind of what we're talking about right now, which is critics' reviews, people's reactions. But that isn't really what makes the Oscar race. It's more about once the winds start coming down, that's what changes perception. A film like mm-hmm. Marriage Story Missing, Noah Baumbach for director, that dips diminishes the movie a little bit in people's minds, right? Now, if, mm-hmm. if it turns out that he gets a bunch of, you know, nominations from like the LA Film Critics and the National Board of Review, then that elevates Marriage Story, right? So it's... Mm-hmm. It, it's it's built on it's built on wins. The per- perception is built, and um, prestige is built on where they start showing up. And all we can do right now, all we're doing, is putting these movies in front of people, and they're going to decide um, how the rest of it goes. Look, we should have learned our lesson last year with Bohemian Rhapsody, right? Nobody thought that movie mm-hmm. was going to do anything, but it just started mm-hmm. showing up and showing up and showing up and. Um, it's bizarre. I thought that was the weirdest thing. It even got a SAG Ensemble nomination, Bohemian Rhapsody. Nobody mm-hmm. saw that coming in our world, you know? So, 
Talking about Bazaar, I just wanted to double check, and you're correct that Eastwood did win Best Director from the National Board of Review for for American Sniper. And okay. even more bizarre, in 2009, he won Best Director for Invictus. Invictus. <laughs> See? Invictus. For the Invis- National Board of Review. Invictus. <laughs> Invictus. <laughs> well, how did, how did they, I mean, with their Clint Eastwood heart on, how did they not give him Best Director for Unforgiven in 1992? They gave it to James Ivory. Oh. Uh, yeah, I don't know. And, you know, I think about we talked about the National Board of Review and, and long a lot of several times in past podcasts in past years. I think that the National Board of Review has undergone a lot of administrative changes over the years, and they have changed the 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 the, the, the type of type of people who are members and the mm-hmm. type of people who are in charge. And so, but that 1992 is long ago, long enough ago that maybe it was a different group of people entirely, and they have are they weren't maybe so concerned about filling a table by a certain director from a certain studio. Gosh, that you should probably yeah, cut that that's, out. That's yeah, that's that's the going theory. And yeah. I mean, we'll see. I, I, I think that what helps Clint, honestly, is his age. I think that people are going to be more, it's like Joe Biden, they're going to be more willing to be forgiving of him that he's so old. And I don't think mm-hmm. anybody's going to want to, I mean, when I saw him at the Q&A, like Clint is sort of, you know, he's, invincible you know he's just he seemed Mm. like he would never age but hearing him talk like he's almost 90 he showed it you know he really seemed old and I don't think that people are going to want to destroy him on his way out you know what I mean this might be right I don't think it's his last movie but it might be his last Oscar movie so I feel like there might be some there might be some sort of thing going on in that regard you know like people will want to honor him uh, more than they other even with the the quote unquote mistakes, also I think people are reaching a kind of a a point where they just can't hear it anymore. You know, they just can't hear the complaints anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like it's everything all the time, and people are just exhausted from it. You know, and it's it's everything and it's everywhere. So I feel like on some level we're almost at the point where any accusation made is going to fall on deaf ears because people are just numb to it, you know? Yeah, like what he did with talking to the empty chair was pretty bad that year. But in retrospect, there's so many worse things have happened. There's so, so many much huge, worse enormously things. worse things that that looks like insignificant and trivial in retrospect. Yeah, I mean it was a it was a blunder. I mean not a blunder even because he did what he wanted to do. But it was it just baffled people that he would be doing that at the at the Republican convention. But I, that's so long ago. And like like you said, so many other so far worse things have happened. They look at it now and you think, oh, well, he's just... Yeah, and I have to tell you, like, I mean, if you take out the politics, uh, Richard Jewell is incredibly well-directed. I mean, I think it's Mm -hmm. his best movie in years, actually. And that shocked me. Like, I thought for sure I was going to be watching a movie by a guy who's too old to know how to... But it's not true. He made Mm -hmm. a really good movie. And in fact, I thought he very sensitively handled a lot of the stuff in it, but especially the lead character. It's such a good performance, and the way that he treats him and the way that he films it, I highly recommend the movie. It's incredibly tense as they're waiting, you know, right before the bomb goes off. Mm. He never slips into Oliver Stone territory. Like, it never gets extreme like that. It's always just very specific to what's going on. Um, and so if, it, if the only bad thing in it is that it's critical of the media, well, they deserve criticism for that. You know, she deserved to be called yeah. out for that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the sex thing is stupid because it just distracts, you know. 
Mm-hmm. It's just dumb. It's a bad, bad writing. But, um, but I, I would say if it was me making the call, hats off to Clint. I don't know that it would be enough to make me change the films that I love to take out and put them in. I, I might do that for best actor, but I think, and Sam Rockwell, oh my God. But mm. supporting is, is also packed, you know, and I have to say, like, there's just a lot of movies I like more than that one, you know. What role does Rockwell play? What role does Rockwell play? Oh, he's so great. He plays the lawyer that defends Richard Jewell, but he, okay. he really yeah. steals the show. Like, Sam Rockwell's always good, but mm. if I could give you one reason to watch this movie, watch it for him. Obviously, the lead guy, should should you should see it for that, too. Um, mm. But Sam Rockwell's great. I mean, he, he got all the laugh lines. So, you know, movies seen in screenings with cast and director in, t- in attendance are very different from when you see them on screen or, or if you see them in just a regular theater. You know, it diminishes the power, right? So that's mm-hmm. why you can't really trust what comes out of festivals and what comes out of these kind of screenings. You just have to wait. And it's hard to wait, but that's really the only way. Do you think um, Sam Rockwell has a harder time getting in because he's competing against himself for Jojo Rabbit? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, no, he's great in both. Honestly, God, the guy can do no wrong. I'm, I just have such a like disgusting crush on him. <laughs> but um, he, he's better in Richard Jewell. He almost has a lead performance. But it's cute wow. because they meet when Richard Jewell's this. I mean, Paul Walter Hauser. God, man, that guy. He better get acclaim for this because. It, it's. I mean, when I saw him in the Q&A after, I couldn't believe it, that he was the same guy. Like, he talked funny and fast and normal, but as Richard Jewell, he talks very slow, you know. And he just has mm-hmm. this, and he never broke character the entire time. But he's like a, he's like a, you know, a sad guy, right? He's like a nobody. He's like a total nowhere man who, like, works as, like, a... Um, a supplies guy at some building and that's how he meets Sam Rockwell by because he he fills up his drawer with Snickers because he knows Sam Rockwell likes Snickers and that's how they meet and Sam Rockwell is the only guy who's nice to him everybody else because he's Mm -hmm. overweight everybody else treats him like he's invisible or at best or mean Mm. to him at worst you know and and um and they they have this friendship and then when he does the the bombing he, he calls Sam Rockwell to say they, you know, they want to do a book deal with me because they're saying I'm a hero. The whole time he's like has faith in law enforcement and, um, and he, he trusts the cops and he trusts the FBI and he lets them basically railroad him into this thing. And Sam Rockwell is basically saying, don't trust anybody. Don't say anything to anybody. You know, they're not, they're not your mm-hmm. friends. You have to fight back. And, um, and he eventually, you know, has to figure it out. He ha- he, it, for him, for his character arc is, I believed in law enforcement, and then by the end, I don't believe in law enforcement anymore. That's his arc. So you can't, on the one hand, say it's a right-wing propaganda movie and then, and then watch how they deal with law enforcement and say, you know, right. that, that messes with that image a little bit because it's not necessarily anti-law enforcement, but it shows how little rights he had in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the sad thing is, is all he wants in life is to be a cop, a real cop, because he's always like a security guard or something. He can never be the cop. Yeah. And so it's Are just, the law enforcement mostly, are the, but the law enforcement are mostly FBI, right? Or am I wrong about that? It's, it's both. It's the cops. Okay, the yeah, cops okay. are, yeah, no, that's true. And then Trump is anti-FBI. Yeah. So it's like, it's true that the cops are nice to him though. Um, the FBI mm. isn't. 
It's, I mean, you can't say this movie's very much an anti government movie. It's like a movie that the yeah. guy in Ruby Ridge would have made. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's that anti government. Right. Yeah. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Like it really is that. And Sarah Palin kind of thing. Like it's, it's that philosophy, 100%. I'm not going to pretend that it isn't. But mm. people like that exist, you know, and it's a movie made about them without a point of view that says it's wrong. Uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? So it's not sure. like. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I cringe at hearing that it's based on, a, on an article called The Ballad of Richard Jewell. But ballads <laughs> are written about this, these kind of real life people who really are folk heroes. There are yep. folk heroes. And if anyone qualifies as, as someone who was railroaded and almost who knows what might have happened to him if, if he didn't have the right lawyer and the right support. Um, you know, I mean, I can accept the fact that he was wronged. You know, oh, well, I can be, tell you, he for was, sure would have yeah, been yeah, prosecuted. Sure. But they didn't have any proof, you know. That was a problem with it. They didn't have evidence. And, and this isn't the first movie that nails the FBI. You know, Seberg does, too, because I don't know if you know this, but Jean Seberg, when she was hanging around the Black Panthers, she was um, trailed by the FBI, and they kind of drove her insane because they, they, oh, wow. they wanted to nice. drive her insane. And she actually had a miscarriage. Um, mm. after she had a miscarriage and, and the FBI was trying to tell the public to discredit her that she was sleeping with the uh, Black Panther and she had a she was pregnant by his baby one of the Black Panther leaders and um, and she ended up committing suicide trying to commit suicide every year of the year that her she had a miscarriage and then finally succeeding but the whole movie is about an FBI guy who, who doesn't want to be part of this uh this campaign to drive her insane. Mm. So it's a very anti FBI Seberg is, but that's all true. And so is the Richard Jewell story. It's absolutely true. He was a person of suspect. I mean, he was a person of interest. Mm. It's just that the reporter outed him and, and she never should have done that. You know, that was just right. uh, The lawsuit was a hundred percent well-deserved problem is, is he just wasn't playing with a full deck. So he couldn't really handle everything Mm. but you know the oklahoma city bombing was done as payback for ruby ridge so that's the kind of level of psycho we're dealing with (laughs) Uh right you know and and richard jewell will go into the pile of those wronged by the u.s government you know Mm. so like trump just like Trump. Trump is, those are his supporters. Those are his people. God, he's so I, disgusting. I hate him yeah, so much. I suspect this movie's going to do really well because it's going to be promoted by, by and play, it's going to be promoted by the venues where there are viewers who only go to movies like this. They don't go oh to any other God, movies. Oh my God, yes. Right? Because they're turned off. They've been turned off against movies like First Man and stuff because of what they've been told. Yep. And, and this is the kind of movie that they feel like Finally, somebody's making a movie for me. Yeah, and and you Ford know? v Ferrari, yeah. though it's not a right wing movie, that's another movie that they that those kind of people went to go see because because it doesn't have any politics in it whatsoever, and that's just an untapped market. Yeah, but we'll see how so, Richard Jewell does. I think you're right that it'll make a lot of money because I feel like people are going to co- actually come out in force to see it. I think it's like going to be promoted by R- Rush Limbaugh and people like that. You know? Yeah. Because Clint's a hero for them, so they have no problem with Clint. If it was anybody else, they would think that it was, you know, a bad story. But that that Clint is doing it, yeah, that's going to be okay with them. It's almost as if he, as if Clint knows that this is this is this is where he's put him. This is where he's placed himself, and this is where 
these are the people. If he wants people to come see his movies, this is the kind of movie he needs to make. Pretty good podcast. We'll see if I can make some sense of it tomorrow. Yeah, I think so too. There'll be a lot of good stuff. We've talked for a long time, but I think it, it'll be easy to find a good 90 minutes or even longer to, to, to yeah. call out of it and spotlight. I enjoyed it. It's great. Great yeah, conversation. Good too. talking to you too. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Have a good night, guys. All right. Thanks. All right. <laughs> see you next week. All Bye-bye. right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.